Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. In this podcast, we're going to look at Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, question 22. We're going to ask, what then must a Christian believe? And the answer we must give, all that is promised us in the Gospel which the Articles of our Universal and Undoubted Christian Faith teach us in a summary. So what we must believe is the topic for our Catechism class today. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So the Catechist goes on to remind us of the Apostles' Creed, a summary of Christian doctrine. Well, interestingly, Christianity is not about what we feel. It's actually about what we believe. Do you remember the Philippian jailer? He asked the question, what must I do to be saved? In fact, there was nothing he could do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Everything has already been done by Christ at the cross. And our only response to that is passive. It is to believe and to trust. So what we believe must be really, really important. So much so that Paul summarises the irreducible minimum of the faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1 to 4. He tells us what we must believe. And I'd like you to pause now, pause the recording and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 to verse 4 for yourself. So if you've done the reading, you'll see here that Paul tells us what we must believe. That would not be popular in some circles if he did that today. For in many sections of the visible church today, the preaching of Christian doctrine is studiously avoided. In fact, some ministers will even go so far as to argue that doctrine is divisive and therefore we should avoid it altogether. I'm told that in America you can buy a Christian bumper sticker reading Deeds, Not Creeds. I recall with some disquiet my first few months in one particular church. In the prayer meeting, the people who were great attendees at prayer, it must be said, used to pray something like this, Lord, help us to unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and do not let doctrine separate us from them, for we know that doctrine is not important to you. 
Now, I don't know who ever told them that, but as we shall see in these verses, it is utterly wrong. Doctrine is very important. It's very important to our Lord and Saviour, for his word is full of it. In fact, Jude talks about the faith once delivered to the saints. Then some ministers will tell you that all you need is a simple belief in Christ and we should go no further. That's absolutely true, that all we need to come to Christ and to be saved is a simple childlike trust in him. But the Lord expects each of his people to grow in grace, to learn more of him. In a previous chapter of this book, Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Some people then will preach that doctrine leads to dogma, and that dogma leads to intolerance, and therefore we should never preach doctrine. Now I would argue that doctrine does without doubt lead to more certainty in the faith. And I would further argue that in this so-called age of tolerance, What the church really needs is to be more certain about what it believes and not less certain. So Paul must have encountered these arguments himself, for he opens 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with a rigorous defence of Christian doctrine. Let's see the importance of Christian doctrine. Paul begins the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 by making a declaration, an important declaration. It could be translated, I make known unto you. It's as if Paul is not just reminding them of some previously learnt material, but that he is driving home these teachings as if he were doing it for the very first time. It's a very exact declaration. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, and which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. The gospel is preached here in its roundness. In verse 4 and 5, you can see what Paul's idea is of what makes the gospel, and it's fairly all-encompassing. In fact, to declare the gospel is far more than just telling people that they need to be saved. It is to declare the whole counsel of God. The gospel is preached in its roundness. And the gospel is practiced in its reception. Now, they had already received this teaching, and yet Paul is laying it all out again as if it had never been preached to them before. Why so? Had they not put it into practice? Is it not the case that Christians listen to the word of God faithfully preached and then do nothing about it save to compliment the preacher? These people had received the word. So have we. The great question is, what will we do with the word that we have received? Do we apply the gospel to every single area of life? Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Our obedience to the Lord should be seen to be worked out in our lives. Maybe a better way to put it in this modern terminology is that it should be outworked. And we live with fear and respect for the future judgment of the Lord. So the gospel is... An exact declaration, preached in its roundness, 
practised in its reception, and permanent in its rigidity. The great body of Christian truth, this systematic theology, is the ground of the Christian security. Paul says, wherein ye stand. The purpose of the Christian truth of the resurrection and of Christian doctrine in general is to give us a place we're on to stand in this slippery, ever-changing world. Have you ever seen such a time of change? For the Christian, there's a great solidity, a great foundation. God never changes. God's truth never changes. And that's the ground upon which we stand. So the importance of Christian doctrine is that it is an exact declaration. But it's also an emphatic declaration. We see here doctrine in the Christian path, by which also ye are saved. Correct doctrine is linked to Christian persistence and growth. Without a knowledge of Christian truth, you simply cannot grow in the faith as you are required to grow. In Ephesians 4 and 14, we read that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. So the word saved in verse, chapter 15 and verse 2 is very interesting. It's actually in the present tense. Paul is talking about being saved, if you hold fast to that word. It's not past tense, it's present tense. Doctrine is the very dynamic of the Christian life. Listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17 and verse 17, where he talks about sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. The word sanctify there means separate them, make them holy, bring them closer to God and further away from the world. Do it through truth. Thy word, God's word, is truth. So it's an emphatic declaration. Doctrine and the Christian path. Doctrine and Christian persistence. Paul writes, keep in memory what I preached unto you. Correct doctrine must be persistently held fast. Not just memorized or remembered, but adhered to. We must persevere in the faith and in sound doctrine. Think of the early church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, where they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Doctrine and the Christian path. Doctrine and Christian persistence. But what about doctrine and Christian pretense? Paul adds here, unless ye have believed in vain. Incorrect doctrine casts doubt on the validity of our profession of faith in Christ. Paul draws a very emphatic conclusion from the Corinthians' lack of sound doctrine. He's saying, perhaps you were never saved at all. Now, how can he make such a judgment? We're not supposed to judge each other, are we? Well, yes, we actually are. 
We're supposed to be examiners of the fruit of those who claim to be Christians. We shall know another Christian by the fruit of their lives, and those fruits are not only practical and charitable, but are doctrinal. Look at the balanced Christian life of Paul in Second Timothy 3 and verse 10, where he writes, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. A true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16 and 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So we have seen already the importance of Christian doctrine. Now what about the implications of doctrine for Christian discernment? If doctrine will establish for us, along with Christian practice, who is a true believer and who is not, then the obvious conclusion is that we should only associate with and worship with and recognise as believers those whose doctrine is biblical. Now that begs a question. Which doctrines are just a matter of personal interpretation? What we might call secondary matters? And what doctrines are absolutely vital and non-negotiable? Well, in verse 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out for the Corinthians the very basics of the faith. You might say the doctrines which cannot and must not ever be compromised under any circumstances. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4, he says how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul singles out in that text four great unassailable truths. Here they are. Firstly, the inspiration and authority, inerrancy and sufficiency of the word of God. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. There's much we can learn about the Bible from that. Paul says, I delivered unto you what I received, the doctrine of revelation. Twice he says, according to the scriptures, Paul does not believe or depend upon his own philosophies or his own wisdom. He accepted the revelation that God had given, and he accepted it without reservation. For Paul to compromise with a liberal or a higher critic or a skeptic or a modernizer or someone who would cast doubt on God's revealed truth would be unthinkable. The modern practices of the so-called progressive Christianity movement would be unconscionable for Paul. The reformers called this sola scriptura. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, we read all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. The second great unassailable truth is the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ. Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I suppose the key word here really is the word for. Jesus died for sinners. This doctrine of substitutionary atonement can never be compromised. 
nor can it be made the subject of debate or discussion. It is the very heart of the evangelical faith, that there is for the guilty sinner the possibility of salvation through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, says Paul, Jesus' death was on behalf of sinners. He died in their place. Peter put it like this, the just for the unjust. And you simply cannot be a Christian if you have not had your sins atoned for. I remember some years ago being in a Christian bookshop in the Republic of Ireland. I got into a conversation with the lady behind the counter and I was asking her about some book I was trying to find. Oh, she said, we wouldn't stock a book like that in here. They would only be read by born-again Christians and we really don't encourage those kind of people in here. What she had failed to realise was that according to the scriptures, if you have not been born again, if you have never been saved by God's grace, you may call yourself a Christian, but in God's eyes you are still in your sins. For there is only one way to God, and that's not through a church, and it's not through the sacraments, and it's not through works, it is only through faith in Christ as Saviour. The Reformers spoke of this as Sola fides, sola gratia, salvation only by grace through faith alone. So we have two of the four great unassailable truths in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1 to 4. The inspiration and authority and inerrancy and sufficiency of the word of God, vicarious substitutionary atonement, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The third great truth is the utter sinfulness and the total depravity of mankind. And in this very concise statement of belief, Paul talks about Christ dying for our sins. In this context, the point arises from Paul's teaching on substitutionary atonement. If men had not been sinners... Christ's death on the cross would not have been necessary. But we are. In fact, this is the reason that Paul can call this whole counsel of God a gospel. It truly is good news. For the sinner who will humbly lay aside his own preconceived ideas and self-righteous attempts to placate the God who is angry with our sins and come to Christ with all his burdens and his problems and lay them at the feet of the Saviour, that sinner will surely never be turned away. And then lastly, the fourth and final in this case, unassailable truth, is the person and physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is reinforcing some great truths. It was Christ who died. The Messiah, the chosen and anointed one of God, he actually and literally died, and he actually and literally rose from the dead. And Paul expands this teaching in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, down to verse 10. There would be no salvation without the death of Christ. There would be no new covenant had not the testator died. 
and the substitutionary purpose of Christ's death would have been rendered null and void without the virgin birth of Christ. For to atone for sins required a spotless, sinless sacrifice. If we remove any element of the death of Christ, we are left with a meaningless, pointless death and a wasted life. So a true evangelical believer will never compromise on the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus, or on his virgin birth, or on his sinless life, or on his physical death and his bodily resurrection, his ascension into glory, his intercessory work, or his coming again as judge. We will guard every aspect of the person of Christ according to the scriptures. Now do you see the great importance and significance of Christian truth? Well as evangelicals these are our boundaries. If we enter into worship or fellowship or even dialogue with someone whether an individual or a church body who does not wholeheartedly and without reservation accept those basic truths, then our fellowship with them is no fellowship at all. The Bible warns us, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Second Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Ephesians 5 and verse 11 have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them. The Christian must have fellowship with other believers and we must do so irrespective of denominational affiliation. I do not think for a moment that because a person or a fellowship is aligned to an evangelical grouping that they are automatically suitable for fellowship. And nor should fellowship be refused with any true evangelical who is in fellowship within a mixed denomination. But the basis of Christian fellowship is gospel truth, not compromise. And the basis of true ecumenism is gospel truth. And any form of ecumenism or fellowship where truth has to be compromised or suppressed in order for that fellowship to take place is an unequal yoke. Paul writes in Romans 16 and verse 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. So in this podcast, we have simply discussed the importance of Christian doctrine. The Catechist is going to go on and explain and expand that doctrine using the Apostles' Creed. Join me next time as we begin to look at that classic statement of Christian faith. <laughs>